Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 353, and I had a conversation with Mark L. Lester. Mark is an award-winning writer, director, and producer. His own life sounds like a movie, from being raised by communists to aiding indigenous rebels to making blockbuster movies, including Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stephen King's Firestarter with Drew Barrymore, and the cult classic Class of 1984. We had our conversation about six months ago, and I'm excited for you to hear it. He's a really fascinating guy with a heck of a life story. Check out heyhumanpodcasts.com for links, heyhuman merch, and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. Uh, Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. My most recent album, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, is on all the music spaces, uh, as are... Uh, several of my records. Check out my relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman on YouTube under Are We There Yet? podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Hey Human podcast is an ad-free show. Your donations help keep it going. Find the contribute button on heyhumanpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Be well. Be kind. Be love. Here we go. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you <laughs> good. doing? How am I doing? Fine. Much better. You look good. Yeah. It was a long haul getting getting through the COVID thing. I went and did acupuncture today, and that helped a ton. Oh wow! Are you that still neg- are you negative or positive? Negative. I, I tested negative yesterday, finally, after two nice. weeks. Yeah. Nice. You know, but, uh, and then I got uh, really a week and a half, I guess. And then I got um, a pretty bad cough yesterday and it kept me up a lot of the night. And then I went to the acupuncturist today and, and it helped a ton. Yeah. I coughed a while after too. The, mm-hmm. I went to the lung doctor. He said, I'm getting all my patients coughing after. Yeah. Stupid COVID. Anyway, hi. Yeah. Is this your new your new home, your new pad? Well, I came up to my bedroom because there yeah. I didn't want you know, this noise. So I just sure. I'm in my sitting in my bed just find a quiet place. Nice. Very good. Very good. Mark Lester, welcome to Hey Human. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. It's good to see you. Yes. Uh we met on the fourth of July at a party. I guess technically we met before that, but b- briefly you were sort of in and out at another get together. Really? Yeah, I don't at, remember that one. At David's place. Yeah. So hello again. Nice to see hello, you. Yeah. <laughs> I so we got to talking. We got to talking at the party about your history and I found it quite fascinating. So I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about it. Let, Let's just jump in, if you will. You were born where? I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, right in a in a in a housing project in Euclid, and um, it was a it was so bad that when we finally moved to California, my father said, "There's going to be a civic improvement project here." I said, "What's that, Dad?" He says, "They're going to tear it down and put up a slum." Oh my gosh! 
<laughs> what did so, your parents uh, do? Well, my father was the court reporter at the Cleveland courthouse. And there was a, a, a murder case of a Dr. Sam Shepard that they made the movie The Fugitive about him, where the guy came in and killed his wife and they made a TV series, The One-Armed Man. Mm -hmm. That was based on Dr. Sam Shepard, who was an osteopath in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, supposedly killed his wife, was put on trial. And my father was the court reporter. So they made a lot of money in those days, you know, from this trial. And then it was enough to get out of the snow of Ohio and take and move to California. And wow. so we got in the Buick and everybody came here and we came to um, the middle of the valley. How old were you? 10 years old. I remember everything like it was yesterday. What stands yeah. out? Well, the interesting thing is, so what happened, my father always wanted to make movies, which tied into my life later, right? So he bought the first like home movie camera, like one of the first ones. And he started filming, it was eight millimeter. And he said, oh, let's make a movie about our trip to California. So, you know, across the country we drove and, you know, there's, I'm out there hitchhiking and he, he created little scenes. And uh, we got to um, New Mexico and in New Mexico, there was a, he said, oh, they're making a movie. And the movie was The Conqueror with John Wayne. And that movie, so I remember we got out, we went down to the set and the, and they, the horses were going around and around the mountain. And he said, oh, that's, they save money in the extras. They just have the same people going around and around the mountain. And we stayed for the day and left. But on that movie, all the cast died of cancer because they were blowing up hydrogen bombs. Atomic bomb testing was being done in the vat in New Mexico. And it was right near the set of the movie, The Conqueror. And Susan Hayward, John Wayne, the whole cast died of cancer and they, attribute all these deaths to this to them being there for months and months during this atomic testing you know wow. so that's an incredible i had no idea yes you can look it up this is the conqueror wow and so we ended up in california and we went to the groman's chinese because the first thing you want to do was do the handprints you know in the in the cement so i have footage of me doing handprints and all this stuff will be in my documentary I'm making, which would be, you know, this biopic I'm doing on myself. I have the footage that I'm describing. That's how we ended up in California. And he had a job as the co-reporter in downtown LA, where I spent, you know, years of my childhood wandering around, you know, mostly seeing movies while he was working. Was your family close? Did you have siblings? Yes. Yes. I have, I have a sister, older sister. Yeah, I'm still close to her. My mother is 98. And your father's no longer with us. Oh, he's gone. Yes. Yeah. You had mentioned yeah. to me when I met you that you grew up in the Communist Party. Well, they were, they, my parents were communists and my grandparents were communists, right? So this was like my grandparents were like out of the 30s. And in Cleveland, there was a big Communist Party. So all of these relatives were like, you know, in the Communist Party, some had gone to Spain and died in the Spanish Civil War. They were not like active members. They were just like philosophically Communist Party. I was very, you know, interested in that, like completely brainwashed into the thinking 
collecting like Soviet life magazines when I was like in junior high school, elementary school, you know. So I was like very inculcated in the far left, you know, system. And then later I started making films when I went to, I, I got drafted and um, I refused induction. So I had to serve like two years community service and where I did it in Berkeley. And, you know, in the meantime, I went to, I volunteered and then I ended up working there at this, the communist party had a documentary film company called American documentary films in San Francisco. So that was perfect. I joined up with them and, and um, I started, you know, making films, like some films there initially. That's how I got in the film industry. You know, before that I was involved in politics. Interesting. When you were a kid and you, your family is, likely well you said that the community had a lot of communism and a lot of communist people but yeah. when you went to school and talked with your friends and things like that was there a sense that you had that you have a different way of looking at things yes no you had to be very secretive because you know you didn't want it was not a thing to be proud of you know being a communist so you were like we can't let people know that this is what, you know, you didn't want people to know that that's what you believed. Right. So you kept, you know, very, it was a very secret life, which was um, interesting, like from an uh, emotional standpoint when you're a kid, because like you're in elementary school, say, and the parents are going like, Oh yeah, well, we don't, you know, don't say the pledge of allegiance, but you can, you have to pretend because you don't want people to know that you know, you're, you're not saying the Pledge of Allegiance. So there was weird, like, it made you kind of an outsider. Did that mess you up? There's a book called uh, Drama of a Gifted Child, you know? So it's like the book, you know, is the notion that, you know, people who are artistic come out of these very traumatic childhoods, right? So, you know, it, in that sense, I suppose it helped me, you know, but in terms of like, relationships and you know um, your view of the world as you're growing up is not so healthy you know mm -hmm. <laughs> right and it's crazy because it, it was a it was a horrible delusional philosophy this far left philosophy and still is and still is to this day you know it still is the woke people you know it's still a a very you know anti-freedom terrible philosophy when the russians lost control you know and the gorbachev and the communist empire fell you know that's when i went to hear this speaker and he said this head of the communist party came to america and spoke you know and he said i'm not a communist anymore and you should be very happy that we didn't try this horrible experiment on you because for 80 years us Russian people have suffered under these people, these dictators. So it's, you should be very happy that we didn't do this to you. And that was like, oh my God, what a revelation, you know? And uh, from then on, I've hated the commies. I hate them because I know what they're about, you know? So. Was it a aha moment for your parents as well, or just for you? No, just me. They're still, my mother's still the same. My father was the same. They still believed in this philosophy. It's ironic that he was a court reporter. I feel like that seems and the antithesis of, 
a communist philosophy. Yeah, very, very, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it's just was his job, but he wasn't, um, you know, it didn't, doesn't, it doesn't make sense that he was so much part of the system, you know, like the legal system like that. Mm. So, but he didn't, he hated, he hated his job. So, but he kept working at it, but it was a way to make pay for kids, I guess, growing up. But yeah, you're right. This doesn't make sense. Is it weird looking back that you made these movies that were in support of it? I was like out of college. Yeah. I made a movie called Cops of the World. It was about American imperialism around the world. That's when I started to make my own films because in this filmmaking co-op, there was two. There was in that era, there was American documentary films and there was newsreel pictures, which were even more far left. And they were making these films like of demonstrations or left-wing activity and then just putting them out there like right away like a newsreel so but then this company was doing like um regular documentary films it took regular time to get made so i made one called cops of the world but i raised the money because i had been working in the democratic party so i knew how to raise money and and they didn't give me credit it's not on my resume this movie i can't imagine it would be (laughs) No, not not that I wouldn't have put it there, but I don't have credit on it because they said, oh, it's a co-op, cooperative, you know, we all get credit. It's like, you can't take credit yourself, you know? So I said, this is, this is BS. Like, I'm not going to, I raised the money. I did it. What do you mean? I'm not getting credit. I'll go do my own films. Like if I'm going to raise the money, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got started. I did the first film was a political film and it's called Twilight of the Mayas. And it was about the Lacandone Indians in Mexico, the exploitation of the Lacandone Indians in Mexico. And I went to Mexico and lived with this tribe of Lacandone Indians. At that point, I'm still very radical, right? So I thought, oh, we'll save the Indians in southern Mexico. How crazy is that? Like Che Guevara? So I lived with them and I made this documentary, Twilight of the Mayas. That's how I got started, really, in the film business. You had mentioned that you were helping them rise up. In order to get them to film, they wanted rifles, right? So we brought in like a shipment of guns, you know, like rifles to these Indians. And, and um, it didn't go well with the Mexican government. So, but, you know, we, and then we made this documentary. But yeah, later, year, many number of years later, there was a guy, Marcos, and they, they took over Southern, they had a revolution in Southern Mexico, the Lacandone Indians. And there was a revolt that was, and they made some deal with the government. But these are the same people. But later at this time, they were still in their Mayan outfits and bows and arrows. Were you able to get guns for them? Yeah. Yeah. What happened when you get caught for that? Oh, uh, well. <laughs> when I get caught, well, they they, they wanted to put, there was a, our, our filmmaking group. There was three of us making this documentary. And we ended up in jail down there for a while, while the lawyer got us like out. Finally. What was that like? It was not good. Mexican prisons, not good. And, um, I mean, this is a part of my life. It's like, it's not even me today. So it's hard to talk about because it's not really me. You know, I wouldn't be this. We've all come from somewhere. 
Yeah, exactly. I was only, I was like, you know, 23 years old, right? Yeah, Mexican prison. No, not good. But how'd they get you out? uh, We were like, we had a lawyer in like Mexico City and they, they traded us for, um, traded us for some other people that were in jail. Like, so we got released and they actually let us go back and we filmed, we finished the movie actually, because it was only like half done. And um, we finished the movie, then came back. But then, and, you know, we ended up leaving Mexico and um, the movie got released. It won the Venice Film Festival. It's a documentary. And so the movie's it's a great movie. Yeah. It's called The Baptism by Fire. <laughs> yes, completely. Completely. Did you so, have an idea of the stories you wanted to create uh, at the time, too? Or was it? documentaries only because you still had this save the world mentality i was strictly interested in politics really in making political film because what happened the history of me really is when i was like 15 years old i was like okay i'll get you know i was so, so into politics that you know i said okay well i'll join the young democrats was like a left-wing group it's still part of the democratic party and they said and i met somebody that was in they said well can you paint the um, the headquarters? You know, we need a volunteer. So I'm painting the Young Democrats headquarters in Los Angeles. And and then the head of the Young Democrats comes in and, you know, I'm working there like it's just as a volunteer. And the, the person that ran the Young Democrats, the executive in charge of the whole organization, she quit or got fired, whatever. And, and so he looked at me, he says, hey, do you want to run the Young Democrats? But I'm only like 15 years old in high school. I said, sure. He said, yeah, it's a paid job, you know, now. So I took over and I published the newspaper and I ran this organization right through college, like for six years. As a secret I, communist, you were running the Young Democrats. That's right. Correct. And and then the the guy that was that hired me, he ended up running for office, Henry Waxman. He became like a famous congressman. You know, you must know he did the Clean Air Act and um still were very good friends and he's so i worked in his first campaign then he ran for office and um so that's the story and then when i moved to san francisco i got involved i was just interested in politics so the what really jump-started everything was this movie this uh, called trisha's wedding so the president's daughter was getting married trisha nixon so you know i met these this group of drag queens were in San Francisco called the Coquettes. And they were putting on these drag queen shows in San Francisco. And I thought like, and I ended up meeting the manager and I said, listen, I said, why don't we do a movie with them? You know? And at the time she was getting married, Trisha Nixon, right? Like a month later, like a month from when we were talking, I said, okay, well, we'll, we'll, um, let's recreate the wedding. And we'll, we'll, we'll release it the, that night at midnight. They get married and we'll have a special screening and we'll call it, you know, you're invited to Trisha's wedding, right? And we'll put it in the movie theaters. And so we did. We starred these coquettes in this movie called Trisha's Wedding. And they play and drag all of these White House characters, right? And we opened the movie in San Francisco the night she got, the day she got married at night, there was a huge ad, you're invited to the instant replay of Trisha's wedding. 
But in this version, you know, she turned out to be a man. And there was like all this crazy sexual scenes and just wild. They take acid in the White House. And, and so the night the movie opened was like lines around the block, like huge lines around the block. And, and uh, the movie became like wildly successful, right? And this went, it was like a Rocky Horror Picture Show type thing, right? So this went out you know, all over. And I ended up opening it in Washington, D.C., across from the White House. <laughs> and it got so much press, like everywhere, like super amount of press. And there was money coming in. And it was like I was four-walling theaters, they called it, you know, renting theaters, playing the movie. And, um, and uh, Nixon, the interesting thing is there's a guy on TV all the time now named John Dean. He's doing all the talk shows now because he was the Watergate guy who was Nixon's lawyer who you know, testified against it, right? So he wrote a book called Blind Ambition. But in the book, if you look in the index, it says Trisha's Wedding, because it turns out that the president wanted to see the film. So he had them break into the lab and get a copy of the film. And he, they screened it in the White House, this movie. And all of the government officials were there the attorney general and John Dean, Nick's, all the people saw the film and the president's like, we've got to stop this movie. You know, this is outrageous. It's my daughter. And right. And um, they all advised him. Don't say you even saw this movie because it'll just make it even more popular. Right. So, so he, I never knew about the screening. You know, I never knew that he had seen the film until this book came out, John Dean, and he revealed, he was on talk shows like Johnny Carson revealing this story, you know, that of this movie, how they had seen this movie in the basement of the White House. So the movie did so, was so controversial and crazy that, you know, some, I met some people and they said, uh, oh, you got to make another film, right? So I was still in the documentaries, basically, right? So I was uh, with my girlfriend at some riverbank and there was a gang of like look like hell's angels hanging out right so i started talking to them it's like okay what who are you guys you know they had shirts on they were called like um, um circus of death they were called oh. <laughs> that was the name of, and they all wearing these circus of death outfits and i go what what do you do and they go well we put on you know, we crash cars and we drive them into each other head on. And we do all these crazy stunts with cars at, at uh, county fairs. And you can't do this today because these cars aren't strong enough because they were made of steel and they were crashing steel cars. So these guys are like, I said, wow, that's, that would be a really cool documentary. I'll follow you around and film you. And so I got, I, inter I got the story of the guys and I just said, well, wait a minute, I'll just write a script around this, but I'll use all these people in the story, in the fiction story. So it's like a documentary, but fictionalized, right? And some yeah. actors are in it and some of the real daredevils, they call them. And it was easy to raise money because I was already, you know, had like people wanted to invest. So I shot this film called Steel Arena, but it was supposed to be like, you know, like America decaying, you know, and to, crashing each other into cars and it had a very symbolic thing to me right and so the movie again it was like the rolling stone most original movie of the year it was like successful movie but like 
but it ended up more on the drive-in circuit, right? Because it was like an <laughs> automobile movie, essentially. It was still an automobile movie, but now a cult classic. So that's that's really the story, you know, what happened, like how I started making films. And uh, it's a story that you can't duplicate today. You can't, you can't, like I've directed 40 films or something. You can't do that now. I mean, like... I got really into, really into films then, and I started running like repertory film cinema that I was booking, and then I had some of my, my own theaters. And so it was like, you know, I just became, okay, I'm in the film business now. And Why do you think oh, you couldn't do that today? I think there's so much competition, and there's no like independent, the same independent film. Like when I made Steel Arena, let's say, I'm not as old as I sound, am I? No, I don't know. <laughs> when I made Steel Arena, there were only 100 movies made in the United States. 100. Wow. Last year, there were 10,000 movies made. 10,000. Yeah. So you can't, there's competition. Like, if you're going to be a director today, you're competing against, like, everybody. You know, like, you, people don't just turn out movies like that. You know, like, shooting movies one after another. You know, the people don't. They don't do it. You read, like, even big people do, like, seven films or something. That's a lot. But Spielberg started out when I did, so he's done, you know, he was prolific because he has his own money. Yeah, that's that's what happened. I started making. Then I said, oh, that, so that movie was successful. So I was just like, okay, what am I going to make, you know? So, and um, I kept going, you know. I made Truck Stop Women was the next movie. So like action adventure. Um, so also a cult got, classic. Yeah. But I got like away from politics, you know, more or less, and just kept, I got back to it certain films, but I was just like, okay, I'm in entertainment. It wasn't like, I wasn't like in politics anymore. How did Firestarter happen? I got a call from Dino De Laurentiis, who was like a, you know, famous producer. You've heard of him, right? He made like 800 films. He got the Lifetime Achievement from the Academy Academy Award. He, he did uh, Fellini's movies, like Eight oh. and a Half, or Dulce Vita, all the Fellini movies. Mm -hmm. He was a producer. He won the Academy Award for Eight and a Half. But then he came to America and started making like giant films for years and years. He's very famous. Didn't do the rentals. And I, I made a film called Class of 1984, which I sent you then. Mm -hmm. I watched it. Oh, you did? Okay. I did. And he saw that film and then he thought, you know, and he's, so he called me and he said, oh, I want you to do a film for me. And I, I said, what, you know, he said, he said, do you have anything? And I happened to be on vacation at the airport and I, I went to this book stand and it was like a book, Year of the Dragon. So I read the book on the plane to meet him and I said, let's, I'll make Year of the Dragon. And then it, it got made, but he, as I developed it, the script, which ended up getting made, but um, Oliver Stone actually wrote, ended up writing a rewrite of it. But then it was with Mickey Rourke, who I just put in this last film. The Universal had this project Firestarter and John Carpenter was the director and he wanted way too much money to make it. And the script was terrible. I mean, I read the script, it was terrible. So Universal wasn't gonna make it, but then they said, De Laurentiis, can you make this film? We only want to spend $10 million. And so he thought, oh, well, 
He, so he gave it to me. He says, can you make this for $10 million? It was just a book in this terrible script. I said, yeah, but we need a new script, you know? And, and uh, so he hired me and I got the writer and we wrote the script based on the book. And that's, that's how I got the job, you know? So then the film was made and um, I saw the remake a couple weeks ago. I'm not the only one saying it was a terrible movie, but the remake's terrible because they just, I don't know what they were doing. It was terrible. And I said, geez, I think I'm a genius because my movie was like 10 times better. And I didn't even have the tools that the studio had now where it's CGI and, you know, this was all done practically, you know. Yeah. At the time. Yeah. So. And Stephen King liked yours better. <laughs> Although no, he didn't know it at no, the time, no, right? At the time he didn't. The time he didn't, the time we were like in this big press fight because he he didn't like it. I think he's pretty notorious for not liking most of the movies made from his books. There are a few he did yeah. like, but there are most of them he didn't. Yeah, De Laurentiis made a lot of them. He made Dead Zone and he made Cat's Eye. He made Dead a Zone bunch of great. Yeah, he made five or six of these these Stephen King movies. And then Stephen King said, I hate what you're doing. So he said, why don't you direct one? And Stephen King directed Maximum Overdrive, which is the worst Stephen King movie of all. So yeah. like proving what, I don't know. But but Stephen King in that Firestarter movie, I can tell you the story. He came, he was there, you know, working. He said, and DeLorean said, oh, we got to do something with this movie. Drew Barrymore can't just be staring every time she starts a fire. What can we do? And Stephen King's like, oh, we'll have her wind blow her hair each time or something. He came up with this thing. And dealer said, yeah, that's great. I said, yeah, that's great. We'll do it. So we did all these tests and all. And then later when the movie came out, Stephen King's like, I hate what they did with their hair blowing. I said, that was his idea, you know? So I said it in the press and, and I don't know why I did, but there were headlines like in all these magazines, King versus Lester, because he was like, and he can write so much better than me. So it was obviously you know, whatever he said, his reasons were, were written much better than my defense of this movie. So the, uh, but now when this next one came out, he apologized. He says, oh, that first movie was good. He's, I, I read some interview with him. He said, this remake's terrible. That first movie was good. Vindication. <laughs> yeah, vindication. Yeah, years later. I really like Stephen King's books very much. And actually his book on writing, I thought was phenomenal. I don't know if you've read it. No, no. I never read any Stephen King until I read the book Firestarter. Yeah. And the producer said, you know, what, what do you think this movie's about? What should we promote here? And I said, well, it's a left wing movie. He said, what? I said, yeah, it's about the CIA and the, do this research and they ruin these people's lives. I said, yeah, we'll make an anti-CA film. I was still like in my left wing mode. And he said, yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's a left wing movie. <laughs> so. How was working with Drew? She was eight years old. I know. She's a fabulous person. Yeah. I love her. She had trouble. Yeah. We, she had to cry a bunch of times in the movie and that was difficult. So we use that eye stuff you put in your eyes and make somebody cry. But yeah, she was wonderful. I mean, she writes, you can read her book. She has some stories from the movie in there. Yeah. Little Girl Lost, I think it's called. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so yeah. happy that she has a show now and that she's, you know, success, successful again. I mean, she's always been successful, but she keeps yeah. reinventing herself. I love that. It's great. Yeah. 
He's a great person. Yeah. So tell me about the documentary. Yeah. So it's going to be just a life story, but I'm, you know, developing what it should be right now. I'm raising money for it, but you know, otherwise I'll just do it myself, but it's going to be like all this footage I have. And like, it's really about the film industry over these decades of drive-in movies to, you know, VHS movies to CGI. I've been through the whole, so it's going to be about movie making with stories like I'm telling you, but then I'll have footage that'll back it up. So. Will you be able to interview people like Drew or Arnold Schwarzenegger? Or these I, people I that- hope so. Yeah, they're on. They're first on the list of interviewees. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm working on. They'll. They'll hopefully they'll all say yes and they'll all be in this. I think they will. Do you and, feel uh, like the documentary is a love letter to the movies, or is it more? This is my life story and what I've done and how I see the world. That's a good question. That's a very good question. Um, yeah, I think I still have to answer that, you know, in the development of this. I'm going to put it all together and see how it comes out because I don't know, you know, there's so many stories I have over years of this that, you know, what which ones to use and which are actually politically correct in this era. I don't know how, because, you know, movie making is pretty outrageous business what what will be revealed you know <laughs> remains to be seen but um yeah it'll be more about movie making because i think that's what people want because i've done a lot of um touring like a different with different movies at festivals or screenings or so i know what stories like people want to hear you know what's interesting to filmmakers so you do a lot of teaching yes no i only i only taught one semester but you go around about, and talk about film. Yes, definitely. But not not a class. I only taught like one class, which I did like New York University. I taught one class. And it's not really because I'm not, you know, they had an academic approach to filmmaking, which I know like you can teach about Sergei Eisenstein, about editing, or you can teach about directing. But for me, it was I never went to film school. So I didn't, I don't really know, you know, I know the theories, but I'm not like a teacher teaching theories. So, you know, I was like, I thought it was going to be easy, but it was like required enormous research and development to teach filmmaking. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I, I had a girlfriend at the time when I started named Sarah and um, Sarah Nelson was her name. And she just said, she worked at this communist filmmaking group. Right. So she just said, well, don't go, you don't need film school. Just as you need to know each thing, you'll learn it from whoever you're working with, or you'll just figure it out each thing you need to know. So I never forgot that. And that's basically how I approached it each time, you know, I needed to know something like you say, fire starter. If you read the script, I read the script and went, holy God, how am I going to do this movie? It was so gigantic to have fireballs flying, fires catching people on fire. Like if you took the whole thing, you say this is impossible to make. So you had to break it down like shot by shot by shot in order to even make the film or you'd just be, you'd never believe you could even do it. Proven by the remake that this is hard to do. I think part of being a creative is being willing to jump in and as they say, build your wings on the way down. Yes. Otherwise we would never take chances. And some of the most beautiful things that exist in the world 
were built by people just crazy enough to make them. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the problem with filmmaking, like you have no idea whether what you're doing is going to be successful or whether it's even any good. The biggest hit I ever made, I, they, I screened the rough cut, I screened with the editor, I went, oh my God, I'm never going to work again. This is like the worst <laughs> movie ever. Which movie? <laughs> Commando, you know, I mean, it was like, it was like, I said, oh my God, this is going to finish me. This is like the worst movie. I'm assuming that many people approach you and say, oh, how, how do you do what you do? What are some of the secrets? What do you think is, for filmmakers coming up, what do you think one of the big mistakes is and what do you think that people are doing right now as opposed to back in the day? And what are you seeing that you're excited about? And what are you seeing that makes you think, oh man, if only they'd pull their head out? <laughs> Oh, I think the biggest, mis what I see, you know, talking to a lot of people always, you know, they, they're, they're all hung up in like the budget of the film. And, you know, like they have a preconceived notion of what a movie should cost. And they're always stopped by like, oh, I need 3 million to make this. And I go, well, so if I, if I gave you 2,900,000, you'd say no, and then you wouldn't make it. It was like they're always stopped by they're putting up their own roadblocks always to projects. So there's that group of people, but then there's the people that actually make films don't really have budgets in mind. They just cut, you know, oh, we're going to make this film if it costs $50,000, $10,000. So, you know, they have no budget in mind and they just start doing it because the, the, but a lot of people know this now, you know, that because I see so many films being made. So you just have to start making a film. You never have the money to make a film. You have to just start making a film. And it, it won't happen unless you're making it. Like no one wants to, oh, I'm thinking of doing this. You're only like you're going to make the film now. Like just start. Like you don't always have money. You know, my kid, Jason's a director. One of my kids is a director, a music video director. But he had this film project called Taipei. And I bought the rights to this book for him. Um, called Taipei and then said it was later changed the title to high resolution it's out and um he's I, I i chopped it around i got somebody to put up like three hundred thousand, and it was like okay well but he needed more because it took place in new york and taiwan it was like so complicated he said oh we need 300 we need to do it for like six hundred thousand dollars whatever it was i said jason i said you went to nyu film school it's like and you were calling me, oh, I'm in Paul Simon's house with his son. You know, I see his gold records, you know, maybe I'll take one. Don't take that gold record, you know. <laughs> I said, call that kid and get money from him. So, you know, he rounded up 300000 himself, you know. And we, start, we did, we made the film in New York, which is impossible for that budget. But, you know, it was, there's tricks to it, you know. You can't get hung up in the budgets of films and there's so many independent films being made. The movie industry has been completely democratized. So it's like anybody now, the tools to make a film are so different because when I was started making films, you know, it was 35 millimeter. You needed these gigantic cameras and you needed arc lighting and all this special equipment. And like it kept, you know, you even the lowest budget film was $250,000. 
And that was when that would sound, that would be like equivalent to 2 million today. So it's been very democratized. People are able just to make films with, because the editing equipment, the digital cameras, anybody can make a film. So you have this like tremendous amount of films being made. So that is, is that a good thing? I mean, I guess, you know, cause anybody can make a film. So the market's like flooded with a lot of films especially like horror movies and things like that. Yeah. I love horror movies. Yeah. So I, you know, that's, I suppose it can be viewed as a positive thing, you know, that anybody can make a film, but. But I think the good stuff rises to the top too. Yeah. With all the film festivals, do you think those are important for people to, to, to go after? Yeah. For, you know, building a career, they don't really do much for selling a movie at all. But for, you know, helping people's careers, yeah, film festivals. To be known, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, to get some mm-hmm. kind of, um, yeah, get known among other film people. Filmmaking, they're getting very scared. So I think people, I think the freedom involved in movies is really taking a hit. I think, and talk about politics, you know, I hate these left-wing commies and I think they're somehow someone's involved because they're, they're promoting, you know, such a lack of freedom in movies. There's tremendous self-censorship going on and it's worse than any rating board. Like I was dealing with rating boards for many years. There still is a rating board, but the actual censorship that's being promoted by people is worse than any censor board. Because they're requiring people like to self-censor and not say certain things and not put things in movies. And the movies have become incredibly puritanical. Like, you know, if I made Truck Stop Women today, I would be in movie jail or whatever jail they have for people making, making politically incorrect things, right? So it's like, I mean, a group of prostitutes, like, you know, running a prostitution ring out of a truck stop. Like, you could never make that movie today, ever the freedom for movie making is being totally trampled to me. It's like, if you're going to comedy is a great example. If you're going to a comedy show, you are expecting to hear comedy that pushes the envelope. Now people argue that Chappelle punches down instead of up. Um, But I mean, having watched Chappelle over the years, he's very opinionated. And you know that when you go to see Chappelle, but you, you also have the option not, to take in that information you have the option not to watch Chappelle to not spend your money on his shows so it's it's always fascinating to me that people get canceled for having an opinion just because somebody else doesn't like the opinion or the the angry mob doesn't like the opinion do I agree with everything Chappelle says no of course not but I also understand I can watch something and not agree with something that somebody says and then go about my day yeah, that's supposed to be freedom of speech. In theory. Yeah, but that, that's that's 50%. They took a poll. 50% of the people today don't even believe in freedom of speech. Half the population doesn't even believe in the First Amendment. So movies, it's hit the movie industry in a big way. Like a movie like Midnight Cowboy. Great film. It could never be made today. Lolita could never be made. Um yeah, that'd be impossible, Stanley Kubrick. You can't, no, no way, Lolita. But, I mean, that's even understandable to some degree, but Midnight Cowboy. 
But yeah. Lolita, I don't, I've, I don't know if you've read Lolita, but that book, it's poetry in motion. It's one of the most beautiful books. Is it a horrible subject? Is it a terrible person in that story? Yes, but newsflash, terrible people exist. And this strange, I'm a little bit of a soapbox here, but to, to just say, oh, no, these people don't exist. This can't be talked about. None of this happened. None of this will happen is insane to me because that just actually opens the door and have it be much worse. You just shine light on places. You have to see these things in action, these things being talked about, these things being commented on. That's what art is. Art is commentary. I think you're in the, you're in the wrong country right now for that. Well, maybe the wrong generation. Yeah. Whatever's happening. But even even when I send you this stuff in class in 1984 material, so that movie, like I finished that movie and it was in the Cannes Film Festival. It was I screened it there and it was like met fantastic reaction. And Roger Ebert wrote a great review and it was sold like wildly all overseas. So I came to the United States. I thought, oh, well, I'll sell it to a studio, you know, and I went to every single film studio and screen that movie, every single one. And they all said Sony, uh, uh, Param, you know, Paramount said, oh, we, you know, this, they all said too controversial. You know, we can't release it's this got film. some intense moments in it for sure. Yeah, you saw nobody wanted to release this film, nobody. And I went and Paramount said, we'll release the film, but we have to screen it first for an audience and see the reaction. So I said, great. So they had a theater in New York or New Jersey and as a sneak preview, you know, where they just going to show the film as a sneak yeah. preview. They didn't tell people what they were coming to see. And for some crazy reason, they ran it with some teen movie that the whole audience was young girls and they, and the Paramount executives were at the screening and the whole entire audience came running, screaming at them. How could you make this? How, why did you show us this? There was such an uproar at the theater that the Paramount said, we're not going to touch this film. So I kept going studio to studio to studio. I finally got to Warner Brothers and a friend of mine was head of acquisitions. He said, Warner Brothers is not going to touch this movie, too controversial. He said, he says, however, he said, if you can get it booked into the theaters or they'll play it, then maybe we'd be interested because we don't even think the theaters will even touch this film. So I said, okay, I'll go to the theaters. So I, I went to New York. I went to New York and I saw this guy, Salah and He was the president of United Artists Theaters, which at the time had theaters like all over the country, like a thousand theaters in every city. And I showed him the film. He said, this film is fantastic. He said, I said, he says, I want to play this in all my theaters. And I said, wow, great. I'll call Warner Brothers. He said, are you crazy? You just booked the film. You don't need Warner Brothers. They're just going to call me. He said, so he said, like, you're the distributor now. I go, what? He said, yeah, I'll book it from you. You're the distributor. And he said, I'll give you an advance. I said, how much? He said, 500,000. And I'll give you a check now, 500,000. I said, well, my dream is that the film should open in New York in the summertime. He says, so he looked as well. I have Best Little Horror House in Texas playing. That's a Warner Brothers movie. I'll pull it. That'll teach them a lesson. So he pulled that movie because it was doing no business in New York and he opened the movie and there were lines around the block. It did like 
sold out every theater like in new york city like a huge smash and i distributed it i we played every single city it grows it was like the number one film in every my city. favorite scene in that movie is uh is the I don't want to give spoilers for people that haven't seen a movie that's a couple oh, decades no. old, but <laughs> when uh, McDowell was in with the gun in the classroom, that's my favorite. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Teaching with the gun. Teaching with the gun. Yeah. I thought that was yeah. a really, and that was a but, good. So that's back to controversy where like, there you go. Like that was even then, like people were sent, didn't want a movie like that to be shown. And that was before school shootings. That was like where it was very prophetic. And even, even the beginning of the film, it says that we don't do something, there'll be violence in the high schools across America. That was before there was any. That interesting. Mastery. Well, that's yeah. the other thing about going back and looking at stuff that was made X, Y, Z years ago is that the, the only way that I can take in that film that I just watched that was made way back then is through the lens of who I am now and if I hold it up against a scrutiny of what is expected in 2022, it, that's an impossibility. You can't take, what year was that movie made? 1982. Yeah. So, I mean, there's the apples and oranges. It's, you weren't even born yet. It's, it's just, it's an insane, it's an insane idea. This like when somebody tells me that, you know, they want to ban Mark Twain. It may, it's insane to me. Yeah, and they have AMC, they have movies, they have someone coming out before each film and explaining why it's okay, like to see Gone with the Wind. That, yeah, at the time, that was, you know, how people talked, but. Right. You know, and this is my argument again of what I said is that if you deny what has happened in the past, you are doomed to repeat it in the future. To me, you know, taking out, we need to see the ugliness we need to see the ugliness so that we understand when we see beauty. Right. Absolutely. But I'm a weirdo. So we are going to do I am, uh, I'm even more weird than you are. I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's an interesting topic. I find it fascinating and censorship of course is, has a long history, but it's from the left. Now that's the interesting part. It's from the left. Well, yeah, if the far left and the far right meet in the middle, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Frustrates me about humans because we're screaming so loudly and screaming doesn't really do a whole lot of good if nobody's ever listening in between the screaming, you know. Right. But And the uh, name of the film you just shot with? Hunt Club. Hunt Club. Yeah, Mickey Rourke, Mina Savari, and Casper Van Dien. It's quite a cast. Yeah, there's, it's a tremendous movie, thriller. It's directed by a woman. And uh, I, there's you go. I was going to direct it myself, but I thought maybe it's better a woman directs it. Probably. <laughs> because, yeah, because I go like, okay, if I'm a man directing this, for sure they're going to attack this movie, you know. Maybe I was too cowardly. <laughs> Why? Well, the movie is about um, a group of men who have been Me Too'd, canceled out, mm -hmm. and they form a club to hunt women down. And then Mina Savari plays this woman who infiltrates the group to find out what happened to her daughter, you know, and it becomes like a revenge movie. I but, love her, by the way. Yeah, she's great. And uh, but it's not it's not promoting that idea. It's a revenge movie like I spit in your grave. But I think in today's climate, it's 
probably sure. controversial. That's the, the missing of the nuance, of course. And I mean, do I think that, you know, as a creative, you can elevate something that so you don't necessarily need sex or violence? Well, sure. But, but if you're doing it and not in a gratuitous way, if you're doing it and it serves the peace, then serve the peace ultimately. Do you enjoy directing still? Yeah, a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, it's it's a great occupation. There's nothing better. That's why everybody wants to be a director. You know, I mean, yeah, it's it's because it's one of the few things that combines all the different art forms. Mm -hmm. You know, you have painting, acting, composition, music, drama, music, every possible thing. Yeah. So mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't, it's it's fun. You never hear, no directors ever quit willingly. You know, they're like generals. They, they don't die. They just fade away. But that's filmmakers. You never hear, oh, I'm a filmmaker. I'm retiring. No, I never hear that ever. Right? No. You heard that? No. No. Even mm -hmm. Coppola is making a new film. You know, he's made lots of new films. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's an art form. Like, you don't you don't ever stop. Who are your heroes, director wise? All the usual, you know. I mean, it's always been Fellini. He's been my favorite director, you know. Always Fellini. So you know, I've seen those movies dozens of times, all of them. I don't know if you're familiar with Fellini. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so I think that's the most brilliant film director. What's neat about going back and and watching older films and directors from a different era is that you can see their influence trickle down through all these other movies. I mean, if you see class of 84, there, there are shots, there are shots in that movie that are a replica of clockwork orange. I mean, I, they're identical shots. Mm -hmm. The rape film. scene for sure. Busting yeah. into the door. Yeah. Right. Awkward yeah. Orange was an incredible film. Hard to watch, but an incredible film. Yeah, one of the best films ever made that you couldn't make today. I don't think you could make that today. It was like, wasn't there like a giant artificial penis and all kinds of weird stuff in there? Yeah, you couldn't make that today. It was X-rated at the time, I think, even. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Listen, we moved forward, and I didn't pay attention to all of this. Although I just did, I guess, if I said I wasn't directing because I wasn't a woman, but I could have dressed up as a woman, I suppose. I suppose, but that's a whole other ball of wax. Yeah, I would have gotten, yeah. So unless you really felt it on the inside, I don't recommend doing yeah, it. Then then it. That's not really who you are. No. So let, letting people be who they are, for sure. I let all the flags fly. I'm a big fan of that. Um, yeah, too. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Mark, tell people how they might find you out there in the world. I'm easy. I'm not, I'm not hidden. Like so many people are hidden today. You can't get their phone numbers. You can't. Have you noticed that? I mean, because everyone, me. <laughs> everyone wants to talk to you, but <laughs> if you want to call the president of a studio, like, oh, where's his phone number? But I'm on Facebook and I'm, you know, easy to, easy to get hold of. Do you have a website? Uh, yes. Titan Global Entertainment. Okay, great. I'll yeah, put links. Yeah, you can send me, anybody can send me any message they like. Is your, do you have mostly filmmakers listening or everybody? Oh, no, everybody from all over the world. Wow. 
Wow. Excellent. Yeah. And I'll put links on heyhumanpodcast.com so it's easy for people to find stuff. They don't have to remember anything. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. I love the name. Heyhuman.com. Beautiful. Heyhumanpodcast.com. Yeah. Oh, great. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thank you. A lot of fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.